And I'm going to awkwardly introduce everything, which is my least favorite part of this. But hey, this is Katie. This is the Writability Podcast. I am here with Eric Armstrong today. Eric, introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Armstrong. I am a professor of English here at College of Sequoias. I'm also currently the faculty enrichment co-chair, overseeing faculty professional development for the whole campus. Awesome. And we're here today to talk about argument. So I think my first question for you, Eric, we're talking about argument in in an English class. It does not mean what we mean in the real world, right? So what is argument? Yeah, I think you're raising a good point. I think this is common in classrooms. We try to separate the distinction, right? That there are different contexts here. I would say that I think both are the real world, but often our general context, our day-to-day context is like, when we say arguing, we mean like, having a spat with somebody, you know, having a disagreement that is contentious. Those arguments are rarely productive. In the classroom, we're often trying to reorient students, I think, to the idea that like the argument we're asking for is both a part of this classroom, but it's also a really important artifact of it's outside of the classroom. Like when you are asking your boss for a raise, you are making an argument, right? When you are deciding whether to vote on Uh, a ballot measure. The ballot measure is essentially making an argument when you have to vote for a candidate, right? They're making an argument about themselves. It's a good call. I should not have been going with like not real world, but like, I think when I hear argument a lot of the time, like, oh, we argued. I think that some people got in a fight, right? Like they're they're angry at each other and argument can be discussion. I wrote that question as I reread Rebecca Jones, Finding the Good Argument. It's from the Writing Spaces book. Mm -hmm. Have you read that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which led me to thinking about another question. Uh, She discusses that like popular culture often thinks of argument as war, as fighting, but we should think about it as dance. Is there a metaphor you would lean to? Yeah. So I think what she's pulling from here is work by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson in their Metaphors We Live By, where they talk about how metaphors guide how we see the world, how we interact with it. A good chunk of that work is that how we think about argument is also based in metaphors, right? Like argument is war. I think before I get into the metaphor, I think it might be useful to define what we mean when we say argument. And so what we mean by that is a layered definition, right? On one level, we mean like a logical argument. We mean that there are a string of statements that are building toward a proposition that are backed by evidence, right? To form a conclusion. And that's what we mean in the academic sense of the argument Different philosophers break this up in different ways, right? But it's essentially like there are these set structures that lead you toward a conclusion based on evidence. In that, we also have like rhetorical elements that we're trying to persuade somebody. And those are connected to those logical string of premises and for the proposition. So I might have evidence for a thing, but I might present that evidence in a more rhetorically effective way to help persuade you. But then they're also representative of values. The proposition themselves and the rhetorical persuasion are also indicative of the proposer's values and ideals and morals. They represent in some way a worldview they have or how they see the future and that those things exist in a context that they're responding to a particular moment in history. And so when we understand that portion, right, and we think about argument as a war, we think about those things as tools of war, that I'm going to use these tools to attack your position, to (laughs) win the day. Right. I was just reading Robert's Rules of Order. Right. And it's like when the argument wins, it's like this side has it. Right. That like it's also it's also like argument as capitalism that like 
when you win, you gain something and the other side loses it. I appreciate the argument as dance. It's a metaphor that implies that there are multiple people involved. The end result does not have to be a loss on someone's part and a gain on another's. So I think that one's value. If I had to choose a metaphor for myself, I think I might say like argument as community. When we think about argument as war, we lose a sense of that. We're actually in this together, right? When we talk about the context external from the classroom, if we're talking about like voting for a candidate, I'm making an argument because ultimately I believe that that candidate might make a better result. But I'm doing that with the knowledge that whoever disagrees with me is still part of that community. And if we think about argument as like community building, we can't disregard the other person's perspective or interest. They're integral to the conversation and that you're trying to negotiate the space together in some kind of meaningful way. I like the idea of negotiation too. I think you bringing up Robert's rules made me think, and Robert's rules guys are these rules about how we conduct meetings that we use. And while you don't know about them, enjoy that, like enjoy not knowing. (laughs) Enjoy that blissful ignorance. (laughs) Thinking about (laughs) what our like department does and what we do a lot of the time when we're discussing something, um, like for example, recently we were talking about computers in classrooms and what computers we should have and in what classrooms, like laptops, like people were arguing for things, right? People were asking questions, but I think we did a good job of like listening to people's needs. Like this person cares about being able to download things. Eric brought up stuff about size, right? Like I feel like we all won because we got to vote on something together, right? So everybody got to like negotiate. And then we were like, okay, as a community, this is the thing we want. Thinking about how that can be applied to writing, I think is really interesting. I know that when I tell students, I always say like, you have to argue, you have to pick a side because they don't want just like informative, right? Like I want there to be an argument, but that side can be nuanced. Like that side can acknowledge, hey, this is true, but this is also true. Yeah, I think when we think about it in student writing. There are structures in place to make sure that students are get, getting that nuance, right? Mm-hmm. To do something where we say like, you have to have the counter argument. Or if we're thinking about, I'm forgetting the name of the book right now, but they're talking about the naysayers and that you have to have them. You have to acknowledge that there are people who don't agree with this. And I appreciate that construction because it means that like, if you think about the counter argument, it implies that there's one counter argument which very much sets up for that binary of argument as war, right? Me, my opposition. But naysayers at least implies that there might be more people than one or more positions than one that might disagree with an argument or aspects of an argument. Arguments about things are complex. There's not just like a side and no side. You know, if we use vaccines right now, which are a hotly debated issue, you'll see the issue get boiled down to like, there's pro-vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. When there's a lot of nuance. A lot of reasons for those positions as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking like somebody who does not have the vaccine doesn't mean that they're anti-vax. They might be immunocompromised. They might be allergic to ingredients, which is a very different position than what is often classified as like the anti-vaxxer position. And how do you get students to acknowledge that nuance? You know, going back to that metaphor thing, there are many of us who try to talk about argument as also listening. So one of the things I do in my English 2 class, I'll come into the classroom and I'll hand out index cards. And I'll have students write on one side of the index card an argument they are very passionate about. Maybe a couple of their reasons. Only on that front of the index card. 
at about, you know, give them like five or 10 minutes to do that. And then I say, okay, flip the card over. I want you to write all of the reasons why that argument is wrong. Suddenly, like students are flummoxed and they struggle with trying to understand like how to argue against themselves. And usually at the end of that, when I ask students to reflect on how that experience went, they will say that they don't understand the other arguments. Hmm. They haven't listened to them. Um, so I think this is another critical aspect of argumentation, right, is listening. And I want to say that sometimes that my prompts lead into that kind of like flawed, just argue what you know kind of thing. I've been trying to ask students to like start with a question. So mm -hmm. don't start with something that you're sure about, because I think what we tend to do sometimes is we start with something we're sure about, and then we find evidence that support that thing we're sure about. And then we never actually do the work of like that listening. I mean, it's always harder to do. It's easier to just be like, I believe this thing. And here's the stuff that supports this thing. Well, and, and to be fair, we live in a culture that values that currently. I mean, just if you look around at all of these issues, there are people who are just like, this is what I believe. And this is all that matters. It's even in like self-help stuff where people try to give advice in these really pithy kind of like one sentence phrases. So like one I saw recently that was like, don't accept criticism from somebody you would never take advice from. On the front, that sounds like a really good like fortune cookie thing to come out with and like put on your wall, right? But even with a, like a minute of deeper thinking about it, what does that allow you to do? It allows you to absolutely dismiss any of your critics. Even the difference between advice and criticism is kind of just perception, isn't it? A lot of the right. time, like yeah. if someone tells me something I'm doing wrong, is that advice or is that criticism? <laughs> right. But imagine like how it fuels an arrogant sense of like how right I am. A critic might be saying like, hey, you're actually not right about that. And they're like, well, I wouldn't ask you anyway, so why do I have to listen to you, right? <laughs> it's like, it's actually not very good self-help advice, but it's super pithy. We just reinforce our own personal values. Related sort of to that, to how popular culture thinks about argument. So I don't know if this is good advice for students or not, but I tend to tell students like you have to actually argue something, something that's debatable, right? We don't want to just like give information because if I want just information, I'd go read the Wikipedia page. Right. But I realize there's a problem with that, which is like, I guess the question is like, how do we determine what is arguable if in a culture that like has taken to arguing everything, even things that should be accepted as just fact? Um, I think that this is really about context too. So one, I think you're right. Like it's really hard hard for students to come in when they see that everything is kind of up for debate. So I'm just going to inform you, right? It seems like a really safe position. So I might ask a student, like, is this information up for debate? And often a student will say, well, yeah, like I hear people question this all the time. And I'll say, so you need to provide that context. So then your information that you're providing me is situated in an argument that is clear to me as a reader. And then the information is not suddenly presented as neutral, but presented as here's what the research facts are. But here are the people arguing the world is flat or whatever. Right. Right. And then ultimately, when they do that, they end up making an argument themselves. I think this is something I try to tell my students, too, that like sometimes arguments and conclusions are momentary, right, until new information and evidence is available. Mm. So at least in the moment, the student then occupies a conclusion that is based on evidence. So if we take the flat earth one as an example, they'll look into it. And I do this in my English one class. I ask them to skeptically investigate something. And one of them is, is about a belief system. They'll look at flat earthers, right? And they'll say like, well, 
they realize that like flat earthers have reasons, but then when you look at the facts that support those reasons, they'll arrive at like, say like, yeah, like the facts that they're relying on to understand that the earth is flat doesn't really map out to a whole bunch of other things. Mm. What's missing might be the situating of those facts on the student's behalf. They might hear it as an argument somewhere else and see it as debatable, but they're presenting it in such a way as, as it's neutral. I really like that in the moment thing. Like, I feel like it's important to like talk about how like issues that we care about, I would say that we're always in the moment taking in new information and changing our belief system. Right. An example of this, I recently ran across an article, uh, I think it was just on Reddit and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but it was probably the article that was looking at uh, community colleges in New York and apparently, especially for low economic bands during the pandemic, grades improved. It was really interesting for me because I was like, oh wait, that's challenging where I was in the moment. I need to rethink this. And it's really just interesting to like practice being open to that, right? Like, because like, it's not a war I have won. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's really hard. Your acknowledgement that like doing it in the moment where you're taking in new information and how does that new information inform your, your understanding of the issue? That's a really hard thing for people to do. So, and I think this is another thing that gets shortchanged in that kind of cultural aspect of this, right? We quickly see those changes as they're hypocrites right? Even though the change of position might be 30 years since their previous position. When actually what we want is like, I hope somebody who was doing something 30 years ago with more information realizes like, yeah, I did that wrong. And it's actually a really common thing in the field of science for them to say like, oh, we did new studies. And like that previous understanding about this issue doesn't seem to apply anymore. Here's a new thing right? It's not something that filters down so easily to everyday discussion. And changing your position is, is not a bad thing when there's new evidence. Or if you haven't fully evaluated the evidence, if you're right. you know young and you have never, you just believed it because other people believed it. And now you're right. looking at the evidence. I think one of the things you're kind of hinting at there that like, I see happening a lot is we think of like beliefs as identity in popular culture as well. You are a pro-lifer or you are an anti-vaxxer or whatever, as if what you believe is who you are. I think like what we believe can obviously it colors our decisions in the world and what we believe and what we do and all of that. But I think it's easier if you don't think of those things as like tenets of your identity to be open for change. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was implied when I was talking about values mm -hmm. and morals, but it's super important to call it out because that's connected to our identity. Writing is connected to our identity. When we write propositions, arguments, and extend them out, they are reflective of our identity and how we see the world. And it's really hard to divorce your identity from the arguments you are making. I think sometimes that can be a good thing. Some of our aspects of our identity, we can't shed or change. I want to make an explicit point here that when we talk like about identity, that it's not all malleable. So for example, like myself, I am cisgendered, mixed race male, white presenting. Um, I often appear white to people, but I'm mixed race, right? How does that influence how I go through the world and how I understand certain things? But it's not something I can change. As I've learned about race growing up in my life, no matter how right presenting I was, I was never fully able to shed aspects of my racial identity because those are determined by the culture I live in. I think there are aspects that are less malleable about our identity that rightfully influence how we see things because they're the way we walk through the world, right? right. We can't really change that. Well, and like for me, I know that some of that, like negotiating of that was super painful. My family and 
like Armenian culture is very, very like quote unquote traditional um, in many ways, right? And like, I was surrounded with that, with these ideas about gender and race and how I'm supposed to carry myself in the world and like what my goal should be. Like through literature for me and through making arguments, I would started to realize that, hey, like the person that I am and want, want to be doesn't always like work with my culture. And like, as I learned more through argument, if that makes sense. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I can think of examples of like moments, one that was like a deal breakery moment. I was like raised like very Eastern Orthodox. My family got a new priest who decided like women needed to cover their heads for communion. And like, when we tried to talk to him about it, he was like, like made it about like, oh, like, don't you want to go to heaven? And like, oh, women look more beautiful with their heads covered or some shit like that. Right. And like, it just did not work anymore. Like those arguments, and like who I'd become through education. This is weird, <laughs> you know? Um, and like, but those moments were painful and I grew from them, but I think it's like so important to acknowledge. Yeah. As you learn and grow, you are going to question the things that you may have not questioned before. And it's a process that sometimes sucks. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Sometimes it's really hard to deal with. And what that means to how you relate to that community who you're now questioning. I don't know if I have advice to how to navigate that other than like find people like you and like have people you can like discuss those things with. And there is more bending and culture than you may think you may have been raised to think there is. And I think you're raising an important redefinition of argument, right? If we go back to where we kind of started with like argument as metaphor, right? You're talking about argument as growth. You're demonstrating that how we make sense of the world around us, we're actually making arguments all the time, internally, interpersonally, right? Interfamilial, right? Where we are saying, so if we take your priest's argument, right? Like this argument that you should wear a head covering during communion comes from a place of personal experience. That's part of the evidence, right? And I think it's important to highlight here when we were talking about earlier in case it didn't come through that like part of our personal experience is valid evidence. It is how we've made sense of the world and what we've experienced in systems with other people, right? And that's an important part of this. And that was where your priest was coming from, right? In addition to the other things that are part of that value systems, the tradition of the religion, so on and so forth, right? But you, in your personal experience, were suddenly forced into making your own argument to yourself, if not to the priest in the moment, right? But at the very least, to yourself in the moment that was saying, wait, this doesn't match with my personal experience. It doesn't match with the evidence I've gathered from the world about what it means to be a religious, faithful person. And ultimately, you had to weigh those positions. And again, I don't think it was one versus the other, right? There are probably a myriad of positions around this issue. And how did you see yourself situated in those? I think this is another good strategy, right? I think it's like the Burkean parlor model, right? Where any argument exists in a myriad of arguments around and that you are entering that and is making an argument that you are deciding that this is meaningful for you in this way. And then argument becomes gross. It is a chance for you to see the world anew with new evidence. And I think in many ways, that's what we're asking for our students, but we're asking them to do it in writing, which one of my favorite things about writing is that it doesn't run away. Our thoughts run away so quickly um, so that on the other side of it, even if the argument they wrote is not perfect, it's an exercise in growth in seeing the world more complexly than you did before you started the thing. 
And that's often one of the things that I really look for as a, as a celebration with a student, right? Where I look at the first part of the draft and then if I see the final one, there's definitely some evolution about complexity, that that is a moment I want to celebrate with them right away. Because you've done the thing I think we're really all asking you to do. I think one of the things you just hinted on, it's also why I like when students use I in their writing. I know that you may run into teachers in different disciplines and in English who don't like it. But to me, like that positionality, that place that you're coming from absolutely matters for me to understand why you're making the argument um, you're making. Like this, the story I told about, you know, uh, veiling while taking communion, like I could write a very like academic paper pros and cons, you know, a reader might not notice a debate unless I talked about my personal experience. So I think that's why for me, at least like hearing where you're coming from in arguments definitely matters. And I think that helps you see that kind of growth that Eric is showing. I just want to support that decision. I matters, right? Persons matter. I think logic and argument sometimes get a bad rap because it tries to divorce itself from the person in a way that can be dehumanizing. We also have to understand that our experiences are limited. And I grew up in a very rural Northern California area. If I relied only on those experiences, I would actually get a lot of things wrong about the world. If we just take an argument about like heroin addiction and the policies that we have been implemented to help people survive heroin addiction and not succumb to disease, death, overdose, we should absolutely be listening to somebody who has struggled with that because they have inherent knowledge about a problem that many of us do not have. And when we talk about persuasiveness, I always find it interesting that like like our Western idea of what persuasiveness is in education often values that logic, those sources and stuff like that. But when we think about, I'm going to avoid using real world, but when we think about popular culture arguments, I do think that a lot of times people's experiences are valued. So I think having like critical discussions about like, which of those do you value? How much? is really important. And I I mean, at least for me, it's always this negotiation of like, these are the things I'm seeing. This is what the numbers are saying. How do I value both those things? And how do I like let them work together to help me form my worldview and my thoughts? Absolutely. You're bringing up a point here about American culture and I think Western culture in particular around argumentation. But the way we argue and reason in Western culture is not how every culture does it. Mm-hmm. We're reading the book, Thank You for Arguing by Jay Heinrichs. And at one point early on, and one of the reasons I keep using the book is because he makes this argument early on, and then I can have students poke at it first. And then when we develop more evidence later, we come back to it, right? Is he says that the Western world invented rhetoric. I tell students like, is that true? Right? I ask them to think about that claim. Is that really true that like the Western world invented rhetoric? or just that definition of it. And then we investigate how other cultures argue. And so for example, we've looked at like Confucian argument, like the Chinese culture and how they value things like community and silence, where in American culture, we value voice and forceful argumentation and individuality. Um, So I think it's important to acknowledge that like, while we talk about identity and differences of worldviews and understandings, even within the same culture, there's differences about argumentation and rhetoric across cultures. There's even nuance within um, like Western culture, right? One of my favorite moments that I tell students about often, I remember uh, tutoring at Fresno City College and I had this student who I was trying to get because their teacher wanted a thesis statement, that argument laid out and then everything um, supporting it. And she was an older student 
hadn't written an essay in a long a long time it was really trying to get her to do this and she was just like katie i don't want to give away the punchline though and i loved that moment because she how she was thinking about how you convince someone was like telling a story like a joke right like stand up where you don't give away the punchline you tell the story first and then you get to the punchline not only are there cultural differences when it comes to like academic i guess arguments but even within our culture like arguments can be formed a bunch of different ways and I, we know we haven't mentioned it much but like it's it's a lot about like knowing who your audience is right yes. like is your audience someone there for a comedy show then probably don't do it in essay form Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I've heard from my students often is like, they argue like a mystery novel. You can't know the killer until the end. Here we're talking about like genre difference too. Oh, so it's like true crime. Like they're right. like writing, making a murder or something. But throughout the entire argument, you can't tell where they are. I feel like I'm watching, I think that's absolutely the right analogy is that I feel like I'm watching a Netflix series. Each paragraph is an episode that's giving me more information, but I have no idea where it's going. Right. It sends you on a different thing. And then you're like, I need to like watch the next paragraph. <laughs> Part of it is walking through like, that's a different genre. I mentioned it earlier, but we didn't spend time on it. You have to know who your audience is. What are their values? What is the context in which you are speaking to that audience? What arguments would be effective? What reasons to convince those people? What wouldn't be effective? So don't talk about those things because it wouldn't get them to agree. And not just in a manipulative sense. Like I think sometimes people think of it like we're just manipulating our audience, right? Maybe like, you know, Jay Heinrichs in his, his book talks about in some aspects that it seems very manipulative. He has that seduction metaphor too, right? right? The really yeah. rapey seduction metaphor. Yeah. yeah. And you have to kind of unpack that like that sounds kind of dangerous, right? And like students talk about this when I ask them, what are the parts about Heinrichs things that you don't like? And they're like, there seem to be some questionable ethics when it comes to like the modes of argument and the metaphors of argumentation. Like if you think about argumentation as seduction, uh, yeah, that there's some really questionable things. And I don't mean just manipulation. I mean, authentically knowing who your audience is and how do you convince them in the context that you're in. And you're right. An essay is different than a comedy sketch, different than a public speech. Any other things in your notes? So I think it might be helpful to talk about what advice we would give students. Oh right? yeah, normally I ask that. Okay, what advice would you give students? <laughs> One of the things is I show students is the Monty Python sketch, The Argument Clinic. It really illustrates the point that we were talking about earlier about the difference between argument as simply gainsaying somebody else and actually making a proposition about what should we do what reasons do I have for that? And what is the evidence I have for that? And really how ineffectual the former is, but how important the latter is. So I would say like all students, like go look at that. It's hilarious. It's funny. It'll for sure be in show notes. You know, the other th advice I would give like, yeah, naysayers, but also just like critically pay listen to the community around that argument, right? So if you're talking about policing, you should absolutely be talking about everybody, listening to everybody in that community. Who's being policed? Who's doing the policing? What are their different understandings about those things, right? Is it different in different communities? Because And how can you come to a more nuanced, complex understanding just by opening yourself to what those different perspectives are saying? When you do that critical listening, resist the binary. Very few things are yes, no, good or bad. And Trevor Noah was talking about this recently, the Joe Rogan issue on Spotify, where he's trying to develop a very 
nuanced response to Joe Rogan's podcast, because on the one hand, Joe Rogan has said some very controversial negative things, and that needs reckoning. But on the other hand, he says, like, I don't want to live in a world where somebody makes a mistake, and then we just they're a criminal forever. He was like, if we take a restorative justice standpoint, right, we don't want somebody to be labeled a criminal forever. Why would we want to do that in society around the arguments that we have? Right. And thus he's trying to resist that binary, right? That you're either good or bad rather, but rather this thing is wrong. We're going to help you grow. And that's what we want you to do too as writers. And then I would say like effectively respond to the objections. I'm going to give a shout out to our philosophy professors here at COS, our Tims. <laughs> They're all named Tim, if you guys yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. So interestingly enough, our name's Tim. <laughs> But they shared with me like how philosophers address objections to their positions. And it was a really useful thing that I'm going to share with my students about like, there are different ways for you to respond. And so they list different strategies that philosophers take. You might deflect. I don't want to talk about that. We should focus on this, right? Is a deflection strategy. If you do that, it changes your argument. Are you going to absorb their objections? So this, in, in this sense, this is a very like Rogerian strategy. Carl Rogers is a psychologist who came up with an argumentation method where the point of arguing is not to fight with each other, but to resolve conflict. And this is where, you know, another metaphor comes in where it's not war, it's how to make peace. And often part of that is like acknowledging the valid arguments that somebody else might have made and how can you incorporate them into your understanding. So a philosopher might absorb objections from somebody else and say like, yes, those are part of what I'm thinking about. They might modify the objections. Like you can see that they're true, but you want to change them or you just outright reject them. And notice how each of those different things might be more or less constructive to the argument at hand, right? How effective is it to, uh, to just reject things outright? It's often not very effective, but in certain circumstances, it actually is really effective. I think part of this is also like to make a good argument do research. Research does not mean typing it into your Google search engine. It doesn't mean it's not part of it. It's not all that it is because the Google search engine will simply reinforce whatever search terms you have already searched before. So if you write things like reasons for not getting the vaccine, then guess what you're going to get? <laughs> you're going to miss all the complex nuance of like why you should get one. And the results on Google are going to be the things that are the most popular and that what was most clicked on and what was paid for to bring to the top of the list. So ads come first. So an activity I used to do with students around research was to search Martin Luther King Jr. Just search his mm -hmm. name. And there used to be, they've since taken it down, but there was a Martin Luther King webpage called The Truth About Martin Luther King. And it was run by Stormfront, the KKK media. And it, you only know that if you click on some of the things. And so we would do a website exploration activity about like, how do you learn about the website if you're going to Google, right? You have to be kind of like a mindful researcher. But there are things on there where they claim it's the truth and it's just made up stuff and propaganda and hand these flyers out to your classmates. Um, so while you're clear, critically listening and you're, and you're hearing those objections, do thorough research to really understand the substance of those um, so that you can meaningfully respond and come to a much more effective argument. And then I'll just say, I'll end by just saying, like, be open 
to growth, right? Like, I don't know if this is separate from the other ones, but I do want to just make a point about it. Like you got to be open to what could possibly be different than what you understand and be willing to change your position. So if you do those things that I said earlier, right? And then through all of that, you're like, oh my gosh, I was wrong. Revise your argument. I occasionally have students who ask me if they're allowed to do that. They'll be like, okay, I read stuff. Can I change? And I'm like, yes, that's literally what you're supposed to be doing. Please, if your evidence doesn't agree. But yeah, I think that that last one is sometimes the hardest, but is like super important. Right. I think about like decisions that we make at COS, like things that we do. And there's often things like there's a couple things right now on my list of like, I've heard it things mentioned in meetings or something. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that, but I I had like planned to go before I start arguing against those things to talk to the people who they really matter to. So yeah, I think learning to like stay open and just like open to growth, open to change and like open to admitting you're wrong to move on is so important. Right. And to revise so that we can have a more complex understanding of the world and the people we interact with, Um, not just the people we identify. Yeah. Have compassion for the people who have stuff at stake in those arguments too. Right. Figure out what groups have trauma associated or like are physically hurt by the arguments. Yeah. I don't know. Yay. Yeah. Is there any other questions like to follow up here? No, I don't have any other than I always ask people last what you're learning right now. So what are you learning right now? I'm really learning about online teaching, I think. Mm. Um, So one of like our assessment for English one, right. Is our 301. Um, I've gone back and read some articles about teaching it online. What does that mean? And how can we do it effectively? Because thinking about changing our arguments, right? Our previous initial argument was like, we don't ever want to teach this online. And then a pandemic happened and we had to teach it online. And it's proven that we can teach it online, but we've also ran into struggles identifying that like online is harder. How do we prepare ourselves to teach online? Whether we're face-to-face with digital tools or online with lots of digital tools, what does that mean? And how can we come to a better understanding? Uh, so that's what I'm trying to learn about right now. That's what I'm really diving into. I want to learn more from you about that. <laughs> uh, yay. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Eric, for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is super fun. So thanks, guys. Have a good day.